Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. questioned about their belief in God would say something along the lines of, well, I I would believe if he would just uh, reveal himself. You ever heard that before? If he would just speak to us, communicate to us, appear to us, then I would believe. That's honestly what Christmas is really all about. God revealing Himself to man and communicating with man in a way that could not be more personal. That's kind of what we want to look at today. If you consider, though, the evidence that's already there, God has spoken to us a lot. The Bible says one of the ways He's spoken to us is, well, through the Bible. I mean, through special revelation. God has spoken to man so much through the Bible that most people are actually intimidated by the size of the book, are they not? Why doesn't God communicate with us? Why isn't He... right? Well, He has in His Word a lot. And why should He give us new evidence if we're not willing to read what He's already spoken? The second way that He's spoken to us is through general revelation. Can I get the next slide, please? That general revelation refers to creation. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 tells us, God has revealed His attributes and power through creation, through the beauty of creation, the complexity of it, maybe the way He continually provides and cares for creation. Psalm 19 goes so far as to say that creation actually preaches to us. Silent sermons all the time. Did you anybody catch that sunrise this morning? Wow. That was preaching God's glory. To me, per, I mean, in my mind, the skies, Psalm 19 say, proclaim silent sermons about God's existence. And uh, Romans 1 goes so far as to say that that general revelation that you see in creation, the design, the complexity, the intricacy, is enough to actually leave man without excuse on judgment judgment day. No one's going to stand before God and say, I I just didn't know because the evidence is all around us. All you have to do is look in the mirror, look at your hands, look at your eyes, how complex they are. You were designed. There's no way you're an accident. But creation and the Bible aren't the only ways that God has spoken to us. Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us in His incarnated Son, what we might call the incarnation revelation. Jesus Christ is the incarnated Son. We might uh, call it the incarnation revelation where the second member of the Trinity, God Himself, actually stepped into our world. Okay, the, the Creator, 
I like to think, had a cameo appearance. You know what a cameo appearance is? Where a director steps into his own play, that sort of thing. The, the painter it paints himself into his own painting. Well, that's what God did. The Creator stepped into His creation. He took on human flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And, and through His Son, we're going to see in the book of Hebrews that He can speak to whatever we are facing in this life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. Uh, Hebrews 1 and 2 is actually where we're going to spend the majority of our time this Christmas looking at some reasons for the incarnation itself. Why did God come? Why was Jesus born? We're going to look at reasons for that. And I think it's going to prove to be of just immense spiritual help for you because it has been for me. Uh, if you open up any book on systematic theology, you know those big heavy books that theologians write that are very dry and boring um, to most people. Um, if you look up under Christology, which is the study of the person and the work of Christ, what you're, what you're going to find in most of those books is reasons for the incarnation. And the reason for that is because the Bible gives specific reasons why Jesus came into this world. And we're going to look at those from Hebrews. But uh, let's read the first four verses of Hebrews here. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. So talk about an introduction, huh? Where's the greeting at? You know, hi, I'm, I'm Paul. I'm writing to whoever, you know, grace and peace to you and the Lord Jesus. It's not there, is it? It's very abrupt. God has spoken. That's the way it starts out. God has spoken. Are you listening? Do you understand who Jesus is? And uh, anyway, since Brother Brewer is talking about hermeneutics, basically the study of Bible interpretation so much, I thought I would try and use our message this morning to extend what he is teaching. Uh, if, if we're going to be rooted in the Word, we've got to be good students of the Bible. And uh, we need to know how to approach the Bible like he's been talking about contextually and all of that. Uh, every week during my sermon prep, that's, uh, that's what I do. And I hope you see that in all of the sermons that I write. I actually go through the three steps that, that he's been emphasizing. Observation, interpretation, and application. I mean, I do that every week, and he's teaching on it, but I want to help you see it more, a little bit more in my sermon today, I hope. I want to kind of highlight those steps by approaching our study of the Bible metaphorically the same way you would approach a full Christmas dinner or a three-course meal at a fine restaurant. Okay, we're going to look at the appetizer, the main course, and then the dessert. Okay, so uh, think of the appetizer as observation. The main dish, 
as uh, the interpretation and the dessert as application. The application is going to be the sweet finish, the cheesecake with the cherry on top, okay? Um, I know some of you would dig in and eat the dessert first, like Mark Varenkamp. He, at our fellowship dinner, he's always eating the dessert first, so we make sure that he has room for dessert. But for metaphor's sake, uh, let's start with the appetizer, observation. And I think Mark had his shoulder surgery this week, right? Okay. I texted Judy and I haven't got back, haven't heard back from her yet. But uh, anyway, that's something to be praying for, huh? Anyway, the appetizer. Before the main dish, you need the appetizer to take the edge off your hunger. If you're really hungry, when you go to eat that main dish, you're just gonna you're gonna woof it down without really appreciating it so much. You're gonna you're gonna dive into it like a savage wolf, right? That steak comes and you're just gonna start cutting away, and you're gonna you're gonna try and satisfy your hunger. So uh, the appetizer is actually gonna help us appreciate the interpretation more. Actually, observations what's gonna give us a foundation for accurate interpretation, which will increase the punch then behind the application. Make sense? Okay, we'll actually appreciate the main dish and the dessert more by eating an appetizer. So you guys keeping with my metaphor, I hope it's not too troubling for you. Okay, when you're observing a text though, you want to be kind of like a detective. You want to overturn every rock. You're looking for evidence, looking for clues. Uh, you're looking for key repetitive words that are being emphasized in that book. We're approaching the book of Hebrews. What are the key repetitive terms that it uses? What are, what's the structure of the book like? What's the atmosphere of the book? I mean, read it through. Take notes. Write things down. Who's the writer? Who's the audience? Who's the, what are the circumstances in the book? Uh, we ask those reporter questions. Who, what, when, where, why? And when you do that, uh, basically, it's going to help you understand the overall purpose and theme and context of the book so that you can correctly interpret it and correctly apply it then to your life. Uh, context. We're looking for literary context. From whom to whom. You're looking at historical evidence. What was going on at this period and in, 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 at, this, at this time period, the cultural context the geographical context, the theological context. It's really hard to go anywhere confidently in our interpretation of what the Bible is saying, which is what we want, right? We want to know what the Bible says. I don't want to get up in the pulpit here. I, and or We don't want to teach a Bible study and just tell people what we want to say. We want to know what the Bible has to say to us, that's exegesis. What is the Bible saying? Eisegesis would be me reading into the text my interpretation of it. Okay, And if you don't want to do the eisegesis, you need to learn to look for what the Bible is saying through observation. Um, you really can't go anywhere confidently in your interpretation or application without all of the contextual background information. I, I like what... I like what Howard Hendricks said. Howard Hendricks said, if you ever feel lost in the Bible, have you ever just been reading and you kind of feel lost? Like, what does this have to do with this? And, you know, he says, climb a contextual tree and get some perspective. Okay, back out from that one little verse and see where that verse is at in that, in that portion of the Bible and then in that book of the Bible and where that book is at in the Bible as a whole. You climb a contextual tree so you understand where you're at. Okay, 
Uh, some of the key background information you're going to need is found at the introduction to the book and the conclusions to the book, or the conclusion to the book. And here's the conclusion to Hebrews, thir- Hebrews, Hebrews 13.22. This is just part of the conclusion. Uh, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Some of you guys are probably need to need to hear that today, huh? Bear with this word of exhortation. Bear with this sermon. Hang in there. Uh, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. And so I've underlined some words there intentionally because it helps us understand the context, literary context. The I in this verse, the writer, is actually never revealed in the letter. That's one of the unique, unique things about the book of Hebrews. Now, we cannot say dogmatically, uh, you know, certainly, who wrote this book. And that reason might be connected to the persecution going on. It might have been Paul, Luke, Barnabas, Philip, Apollos. Others have been suggested. Suggested Whoever they are, they're likely Jewish because they're familiar. They're so familiar with the old Judaic religious systems and, and tradition that you see mentioned throughout the book. All, you know, the think of the Law of Moses, all the Old Testament stuff. The Law of Moses, the sacrificial system, all of that stuff. The temple... That's uh, going to be mentioned all throughout this book. And uh, you'll also notice that the audience, who, how is the audience described there? Brethren, brethren, our brother. Elsewhere, Hebrews calls them partakers. They're heirs, they're holy brethren. I mean, this suggests that he's writing to believers. These are people who have believed in Christ And that's important to take into consideration when it comes to the warning passages found in Hebrews. Because some will come to the warning passages. If you're familiar with Hebrews, there's five warning passages. And some will say, well, those are for unbelievers. But when you actually look at the content in the book, it's suggesting, and you look at the purpose of the book, the content, everything that's there, it's suggesting that this is actually written to mostly Jewish believers. And that's hence the title Hebrews. Hebrew people, right? So they're in danger of reverting back to the old Judaic system with the law of Moses and the temple and the priesthood. Okay, so audience is important because it helps us understand those warning passages. It helps us understand the purpose of the book. The Gospel of John, think of this. What's the purpose of the Gospel of John? He says, I've written these things so that you may believe. He's evangelistic. He's writing about the identity of Christ, the person and work of Christ, so that someone will come to believe in Christ, so that they'll turn to Christ. Now, when you come to the book of Hebrews, it's different. He's actually writing to believers. He's not being evangelistic. He's actually saying, he's actually reminding them of Jesus' identity, of Jesus' person and Jesus' work, what he's done for them, so they actually don't turn away from him and back to Judaism. See, two completely different purposes. One is pointing people to, well, to Jesus because they haven't believed. One is trying to keep people believing in Jesus and not turn away from him. Uh, He wants them, the book of Hebrews wants them to see as Jesus is superior to Judaism. And so that's the circumstance. That's the circumstance. Jewish Christians had come out of Judaism to embrace Christ as the Messiah and uh, they were not appreciated by 
the unbelieving Jews. They were actually the biggest antagonists and instigators against the church was the unbelieving Jews. That's what we saw in Mark. That's what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts when we return to the book of Acts. These unbelieving Jews who thought Christ was the false Messiah were trying to get Jewish believers now to revert back to Judaism through threats, through persecution, through false teaching. And as a result, the Jewish believers are tempted to go back or at least participate again in the Judaic system to at least pacify their antagonists. Does that make sense? I'm going to live with one foot in Christ and one foot in this old system over here. So one foot in the new, one foot in the old, that kind of thing. And imagine this, though. Imagine being in a Jewish family in the 80s, 60s, when persecution's heating up. You as a young man or woman, you, you're maybe you're, you're a young man or woman, you, you come to believe based on the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised to Israel. He's the, he's the one. However, your family and your neighbors don't believe it. And they, and maybe the elders of the synagogue, they, they threaten you. They say, if you don't return to, to Judaism and, and turn from this false Christ, you're going to be disowned. They'll disown you. Put yourself in these shoes. They're using Scripture falsely to try and convince you. They're using tradition for their claims, saying things like, how dare you not celebrate Shabbat? How dare you not come to synagogue on the Sabbath and worship? How, how dare you not offer a sacrifice for your sin anymore? Whoa, right? Are you, you just not a sinner now? You're not going to offer a sacrifice for your sin? I saw what you did the other day. How dare you not continue the traditions of our fathers? Ooh. You know, tradition in, to the Hebrews is huge. So that's pretty serious business, isn't it? It would be terribly confusing. It would be terribly difficult. It would be tempting to go back to Judaism, or, is, or at least live with one foot in Christianity, one foot in Judaism, but the writer of Hebrews is exhorting them. Remember, it's a word of exhortation. This book is a word of exhortation, exhorting them to stand firm in their faith in Christ. To stand firm. Don't go back. Jesus is superior to that. I mean, the author is not disparaging of Judaism in this letter, he's not saying it's completely worthless, it had no point, it's, you know, he's not attacking Judaism, he's just trying to demonstrate through the letter that that whole system, the law of Moses, the temple, all of this, this was actually designed intentionally to point you to Jesus. He actually says all of that was a shadow and Jesus Christ is the substance. So the shadow is the Old Testament sacrifices being offered Constantly, right? The, the lambs and the goats that are slain, they all picture the real thing that was supposed to come, which is Christ on the cross, the Lamb of God being slain for the sins of the world. That one sacrifice is what all of those sacrifices were pointing them to and preparing them for. 
That's what you see in the book of Hebrews. Why go offer now the sacrifices at the temple if the better and perfect and eternal Lamb of God has been sacrificed as God always intended? You keeping up with this? And I use three key words there intentionally. Better, perfect, and eternal because um, those are the key words in this book. Better is going to be used 13 times. Uh, perfect is used 14 times. Better, perfect, and eternal is used six times. All of these suggest something that is unmatched, something that's superior. That's the theme, is that Christ is superior. You can't get any better than Him. He's, he's better, He's perfect, He's eternal. And that's in contrast to the old system, which is not perfect, temporal designed to fade away, essentially. So the writer demonstrates Christ is superior to the prophets in this book. He's superior to angels. He offered a superior sacrifice with superior blood. His blood is much more superior than that of a lamb, a literal lamb. So he's, he's a superior priest, or high priest from a superior priesthood. Not the Levitical priesthood, but the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's a superior servant to Moses. He's a superior, he's a mediator of a superior covenant, new covenant. Uh, he offers uh, superior promises, superior hope, a superior lasting possession. And all of this is going to be demonstrated with 29 direct quotations from the Old Testament. And he's going to allude to the Old Testament passages. Uh, 53 more times beyond those. So the writer's saying, why go back to this temporal Judaic system with temporal sacrifices and all of that when the perfect Lamb of God has been sacrificed once and for all? And He brings us a complete eternal redemption. Jesus is superior, everything else inferior. And uh, that context, that, the content in the book tells us something about the timing of when all of this was written and maybe even the where of like who it was written to, where they lived. The present tense temptations that are in this book suggest the temple in Jerusalem is still in full operation. They're considering going back to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. It's still in op operation. The priests are still sacrificing animals continually. They're, they're still standing. There's a lot of present tense references in relation to the temple and um, that might indicate that these Jewish believers are in Jerusalem or in the Judea area. And so think of that. Uh, that's how intense the temptation is. Christ is gone and I'm now uh, operating I, like by the Spirit through faith, and I'm looking over here at the temple, and I'm really drawn to that, right? I'm drawn to the smells and the bells <laughs> and the, the offerings over here, because that's something I can feel, I can touch it, right? I'm really drawn to that. That's why um, religion's so popular, because we're drawn to the physical things we can do and touch and see, and we're not, you know, it's, it's a little harder to actually have faith believe in Jesus Christ and to trust him but uh, anyway if the temple still or if the temple is still in full operation 
That means this is before A.D. 70. Who knows what happened in A.D. 70? Temple was destroyed, right? Just as Jesus prophesied. And uh, the author in this book, in chapter 8, he'll describe the Old Covenant as becoming obsolete and growing old. And he says it's actually ready to disappear. Ready to disappear. And you'd, you'd have to think that if the temple was destroyed by now, he would have used that as proof for that claim. So anyway, when was it written? Just prior to the temple destruction in the 60s when persecution was really heating up. That makes the most sense. Okay, so after making all of these observations, don't you feel a lot more prepared now to actually enter into the book, like to interpret it correctly and apply it to your life? I mean, don't you feel like you've already eaten a lot already? Feel like you've been at Texas Roadhouse already and you ate those rolls with the cinnamon butter? And then the main course comes and you're like, oh, I can't eat this because <laughs> I'm so full. I knew I shouldn't have ate those, all those rolls. I knew I should have just ate one. It happens to me every time. Anyway, and then they give you that big salad with it. And it's just like all that bread and all that salad. And it's like the, the, my ribs come out that I've cooked or they've had them cook. And it's like, can I just get it into the to-go box? <laughs> right? Anyway. When you actually make all of the observations properly, you already feel like you've eaten a lot. You already kind of know how to apply it to your life and where the author's going. But without observations like that, we're just going to become loose cannons in our interpretation applications. We're going to be firing all over the place probably. So anyway, let's look at the main course now, the interpretation. Uh, dive into our, uh, our introductory verses to Hebrews. And again, this is not a normal greeting. You, you probably picked up on that. It's shocking, isn't it? Because it's just to the point. There is no, hi, I'm so-and-so, and you know, grace and peace to you. It's just like, listen up, right? God has spoken. There's, and, and, and it's interesting is that that theme that God has spoken is going to be carried on throughout this entire book. God has spoken. Uh, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen up, right? So, so that you aren't disciplined by the Lord. That comes in chapter 12 after a lot of these warnings. It's, it's warnings to believers with the consequence that if you don't listen to God, what God is saying, there's going to be consequences for it. Okay? And God only disciplines His sons, right? So anyway, I think the introduction here is like a sampler platter that gives us a taste of basically what the rest of the letter is like and what it's all about. And uh, he gives us right off the bat here eight ways that Jesus is described as superior to the prophets. The son is the heir of all things in verse 2. Heir, what do you think of when you think of heir? An heir is uh, royalty, right? Authority. He's the heir of all things. The Son created the world. Uh, he's the active agent in creating the world. You know, when you read Genesis chapter 1, 1, do you see Jesus in there? In the beginning, God created. Do you see Jesus when you read that? Because that's the Bible's testimony. He's the active agent in creation according to John 1, Colossians 1, uh, Hebrews 1. 
Is that your Jesus? Do you see Jesus the same way the Bible views Jesus? All things came into being through Him. He made us. Uh, Number three, the sun radiates the divine glory of God. And uh, I liked what Ryrie said, like the rays of the sun to the sun, so is Christ to the Father. He radiates the glory of God. The sun is the exact representation of God's nature or essence. That's in verse three. The exact representation of God's nature or essence, kind of like an imprinted mold, like you've got a die and then, and then you stamp something and there's the mold that's left over. Um, so Jesus is to the Father. Uh, he's like the carbon copy to the Father. My iPad, guys, is having a fit this morning and uh, couldn't use my iPad for the first time in a long time, so I had to actually use hard copy notes. This is terrible. Such a step back in time. I actually got to work to change pages. And This is like the, the visible copy of my virtual version, right? So the visible version of the invisible copy that's on my iPad, if I could open it. Anyway, I'm hoping that my iPad is still going to be good because I just did a software update to try and solve the glitches that were taking place. And I don't think that thing's been updated in like six years, so this could be troublesome. Um, <clears throat> anyway, where am I at? So Jesus is kind of like this hard copy to my to my uh, virtual copy. He's the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, right? Exact representation or exact uh, copy of his nature, his essence. The sun also upholds the material universe. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus Christ upholding the material universe. I mean, that's not just talking about Atlas. Have you ever seen that picture of Atlas holding the world? He's not upholding the world like that. It's literally, he's holding all things together. The laws of the universe, why are they so constant? How is that all happening? Jesus Christ upholding it with a word of his power. Isn't that amazing? The son made purification for sins. That's a reference to his priesthood. Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he is king. This is a reference to his priesthood. And uh, that expresses his superiority in the sense that no other priest could ever offer a sacrifice that would purify us of our sins totally to be completely forgiven of our sins but jesus has through intervening on our behalf right he came between the holiness of god and sinful man and offered himself he paid the debt for us that we couldn't pay he interceded for us okay in order to offer a sacrifice that would forever purify you of your sins you would have to be perfect. You'd have to be perfect to please God's perfect holiness. Well, that's what Jesus did. You'd have to be God to do that. And Jesus is. Actually, Hebrews 4.15 will say, um, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet apart from sin. He did not sin. He didn't have a sin nature because he wasn't born of man. He was born of God, right? by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. He didn't have the sin nature that we all have that was passed on from Adam and Eve onto us and everybody else. 
He's the God-man who didn't have a sin nature. Seven, Number seven says he was sat down at the right hand of God. And that highlights, I think, his completed mission as a priest. He offered a sacrifice and then he sat down. And what the book of Hebrews is going to say is that no priest does that on earth. Nobody in the Levitical priesthood has ever done that. They don't sit down. They're on their feet constantly offering sacrifices. But Jesus offered a sacrifice and it was sufficient. Therefore, he sat down. Isn't that great? Okay. It also represents his office as king in authority. He's at the right hand of God. And that's, that's a position of authority. And uh, he's now waiting to return in his second coming as king where he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. That's what Hebrews 2 verse 8 says. There's nothing that's not subject to him, yet it says in chapter 2 verse 8, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Okay, There's a day coming when he will come and subject everything to himself. But we don't see that quite yet. Um, in Revelation 19, he comes waging war as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The first time he came as a baby and on a donkey, it was pretty humble, right? Revelation 19, how, how does he come in Revelation 19? On a war horse. Okay, and he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Uh, number eight, the sun is greater than the angels. And this is kind of getting into the next subject. But uh, this is what's discussed throughout the rest of chapter 1 and actually even into chapter 2. And uh, I think the reason that's there, he's better than the angels, is not due in, in part because of the fact that, well, we know in, in, like in Colossians, we just went through the book of Colossians in Larry's Sunday School, and there was, a, there was trouble in that church with angelic worship. I don't think that's actually what's going on in here with the Hebrews. I don't think the Hebrews were as tempted to do that. I think what was going on is uh, the Judaizers trying to get Christians to revert back to Judaism were saying something along the lines of Jesus was just a man, but we know that the law was mediated through angels, right, and confirmed through angels. And you can cross-reference that with what uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, so when God gave the, the law on Mount Sinai, there was actually angelic presence there mediating that, involved in that. And uh, that was Jewish tradition too. But uh, if you read the rest of the chapter, he uses quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament to demonstrate Jesus is actually superior to angels. Superior to angels. None of these eight statements, look at these statements. These, these are incredible None of these are going to describe any mere man. Those can't even describe an angel there. there there's, there's no one with that power. If it is a man or an angel, I mean, they're only fitting for someone who is, what? God. Only God can create the world. Only God can create all things and sustain all things. Only a perfect God can make an eternal lasting sacrifice that actually atones for our sins. Only God can sit where Jesus is sitting. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I think a relevant question to ask ourselves would be, is this actually my view of Jesus? Is my Jesus 
the Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, Jesus. There's a lot of people out there in the world today who say they believe in Christ, but this is not their Jesus. Okay, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not have this Jesus. <laughs> you want to make sure you're worshiping the, saint, the right Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Okay? Part of the problem, though, even with, with Christians who believe in Jesus, is, is they, they, we might be tempted to turn to something other than Jesus because we don't really understand just who He is. Does that make sense? He's not enough, so I'm going to turn to this over here for whatever's going on in my life. Um, if we don't grasp His superior perfection and just how, how big He is, we could say, then we're going to be tempted to turn to inferior things for whatever we're going through. The Old Testament prophets were responsible for communicating God's Word, right? That's what they did. God gave them a message. They, they shared it with the people. And in the Old Testament, God revealed Himself. How does the, the writer of Hebrews say? In these last days... Wait, no. He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many... Ways. So it was kind of a bit-by-bit, bit, piecemeal format. Many portions, many ways to the Jewish fathers. Their fathers, by the way, received incredible revelation from God. But think about what the author is saying here. God spoke to them that way, in a piecemeal format, in fragmentary, incomplete messages. But God has spoken to us in His one and only Son. Okay, he brought a, a final complete message. He's a superior revelation. He brings superior revelation and he's a superior messenger. Right? The weight of the message uh, is, is superior based on who's giving it. Okay? He's not just another prophet. He's not just another word from God. Jesus is the word of God. We just sang that this morning. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. He's the divine Logos, the Word, the superior Word from God to us. Look at the, the prophets. Prophets were called by God. Jesus is God. Prophets, there were many prophets, but there's only one Son. They brought fragmentary messages. He brought a complete message to sum up their messages. He spoke to them in the past. He has spoken to us today, which means it's a, it's a further revelation. And uh, anyway, this you, you, you read this and we come to the interpretation that the Son is what? The Son is God's superior communication to us. There's our interpretation. The Son is God's superior communication to man. He has spoken to us in His Word. We have His Word. Now, what are we going to do with Him? Is Are we going to focus on Him, are we going to turn to Him, or are we going to harden our hearts, not listen to God's voice, His Word, and we're going to turn back to Judaism? You catch that? And that's what the warning passages allude to in the book of Hebrews. Don't drift from God's Word. Don't doubt God's Word. Don't be spiritually dull towards His Word. Don't uh, despise the word. Don't defy the word through disobedience because if as, as his sons, if we do that, we'll be disciplined for it. Does that make sense now? 
You see that, that whole theme throughout the book of Hebrews. The Son is God's communication to us in the sense that He is God who through His incarnation walked among us and communicated God to us. Everything He did communicates to us who God is, what He has done, what He is like. I mean, it answers the question, what is God like? What is God like? Well, Jesus said, look to me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The incarnation answers that question. He's the most personal form of communication we can ever imagine. I'd believe in God if He just appeared to, to us. Well, He has. The evidence is there. Let's examine that evidence. He doesn't have to do that all the time. You know, over and over and over again. The infinite and invisible one is understood through His incarnated visible one. And that's the first and primary reason for the incarnation, right there, to reveal God to us. That becomes the first reason for us. All four systematic theology books I looked at for this study agreed that was the number one reason for the incarnation itself, just to reveal God to us. It even reveals His salvation. Look to Christ. Okay, when you look to Christ, you see, his, you see God's power to be born of a virgin, you see his humility, that he would actually lay his glory by to come into this world that men no more may die, to give himself for us, to be born of a, a poor family, to, I don't know, just everything he did, to be a servant, to wash our feet. Wow. You see his wisdom, God's wisdom, in the way that he would accomplish salvation in the way that he did. You see his glory, his justice, his love. You see his grace. You see truth. Jesus was all of that. When you look at Jesus, that's what you see, all of those things in a very tangible sense, in a, in a way that, that, that communicates to us powerfully, tangibly. I, I think it's so frustrating when, when, we, when we want a sign in the sky just give me a cloud that looks like a cross or something. You know. If God was going to communicate to us, how do you think he would do it? Words, language. That's, that's what he's done in the Bible. And even more than that, he actually became a man and walked among us. It reminds me of uh, Paul Harvey's uh, snowstorm with the bird in it. Remember the old farmer who's got this, there's a blizzard outside and there's a bird trying to get into his house that's always pecking at the window trying to get in. And he's like, man, if only I could... He went over to the barn, he put on his jacket and his boots and he went over to the barn, turned the light on in the barn, opened the door so the bird could see that there's light over there too and get in the barn and stay warm, stay out of the blizzard. And he, he just nothing was working to get the bird to go into his barn. He's like, if only I could become a bird, then I could lead the bird to warmth. Well, that's what Jesus did. He became one of us to lead us to safety, to salvation, to communicate with us. Anyway, if all of this is true, okay, what should we have for dessert now? <laughs> what should we have for dessert in the application? Well, let's apply Brewer's question in his notes. How would this apply to the original audience? How would they understand it? How would a Jewish Christian 
who was being tempted to revert back to Judaism with the Old Covenant, the temple sacrifices, and the rituals, how would they understand this? And we've talked a lot about it already, but they would have to understand now that if Jesus is superior to all that, because of who He is and what He has done for them, then He's sufficient for what they're, they're, they're facing in life, what they're experiencing. They, they shouldn't turn back from Christ. In reality, they should even turn even more to Christ. They should focus more on how God has spoken to them in Christ. And that's what the author is going to demonstrate to them. If our interpretation is correct, that Christ is superior to everything else, then therefore, He is sufficient for whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through. And they were going through a lot, weren't they? And so the question, the applicable question becomes, how can the incarnated Son's person and work speak to the situation that I'm facing? That'd be a good question to apply to yourself. Imagine the Judaizers telling these new Christians they need to go and offer sacrifices for their sin. I saw what you did the other day. You need to go offer a sacrifice. Take one of your lambs, take it down to the temple, offer it. Well, how has God spoken to that situation in His Son? Well, if the Son has, through His once-for-all perfect sacrifice, purified them of their sins, why should they continue offering the sheep? They don't have to anymore, right? Look at Hebrews 10, 11. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How has God spoken to that situation in his son? His son offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. In fact, let me turn to Hebrews 13. Let me turn to Hebrews 13 here real quick. Hebrews 13 says, we're basically all like priests who offer different sacrifices now. Look at Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Ooh, we have new sacrifices in our new system. Let us offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Isn't that neat? Here's your new sacrifice in the Son. Give thanks to God for Him saving you, the fact that you don't have to offer those sacrifices over and over and over again. Right? If He's, if he's their high priest in heaven, what use do they have for the earthly priesthood now? 1 Timothy 2 says there's, there's, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. They don't need the priesthood anymore. Actually, what does Hebrews say to that in 4.16? Let us... Well, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. He's our high priest. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we don't need the priesthood. We can go directly to God's throne through our high priest, Jesus Christ. You see today how many churches are still stuck in Judaism? It's terrible. I grew up in a church that was basically Old Testament Judaism revamped with, a, with Christ in it. You know, it was a mix of old and new. It was interesting. Um, actually, I shouldn't say interesting. I would say it was imprisoning. It was bondage. I didn't really understand who Jesus was. I didn't really understand what he did for me. Therefore, I was a slave to the system. Hebrews 10 suggests, look at this. Hebrews 10 suggests that their, their persecutors were seizing their property and their possessions, leaving them poor. They were experiencing reproaches and tribulations, being mistreated. How has God spoken to that situation they're going through in His Son? Well, I think for one, they can certainly, certainly look to Christ's person and see that He humbled Himself. Christ had times in His life where He had no place to lay His head. He, had, he lived a very poor life. His family was poor. They could only offer birds at the temple for their sacrifice. But the writer of Hebrews says they should accept the seizure of their property joyfully because of the work that Christ has accomplished for them. 10, chapter 10, verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence because it has great reward. Okay? If you turn back to Judaism you're going to lose out on so much rewards. And one of them is just the reward of, of joy and peace <laughs> in this life. But rewards to come as well. So they, yeah, they're, they're having their property seized for their faith in Christ, but they have a better possession. They have an, internal, an eternal inheritance to look forward to. Don't just live for this world. Don't just live for this temporal temple. Live for the world to come. Not just the here and now, but His coming kingdom. And by the way, that's a kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28 says, cannot be shaken. It can't be shaken. Well, now let's apply the situation to us. Are there any false teachers in our day trying to get us to turn away from the biblical Christ, to an inferior Christ? Absolutely. There are all sorts of churches with the name Jesus Christ on the side of the building that take away either one from his person or number two from his work. He's either not God or he's a lesser God or some weird conglomeration of something. Like Mormons believe he's Satan's spirit brother. Okay? Weird ideas out there. Or they take away from his work that his sacrifice, I'm always looking for the cross over here, right? That hangs there most of the year. Or they take away from his work on the cross and they say, well, it really wasn't enough and you need to do this and this and this. It happens all the time. What are we going to do when we encounter that stuff? What are we going to do when some guy, a couple of guys come knocking on our door with a Bible in their hand saying we need to believe what they're teaching? 
I mean, they're going to use Scripture to try and convince you that Jesus isn't who the Bible says he is, really. Does that make sense? They're going to take away from his person and his work. What are you going to do? Are you going to turn to Christ, the God-man who died for you, or are you going to actually revert back to some sort of religious works-based system? Because it sounds convincing. The Judaizers sounded convincing. So, if you do that, if you have an inferior Christ, someone who isn't God, you don't think his death is sufficient for you, you're going to get on their treadmill of religious works. Even our own sinful nature, sometimes we have to turn to Christ when, when, when we encounter it. Because our own sinful nature is always trying to get us to go back to some sort of performance-based salvation, isn't it? That's what Galatians talks about. The flesh, always performance-based, trying to get us to be good enough to get to heaven instead of just living by grace through faith in Christ. Well, anyway, the original audience, they, they, they were influenced by uh, social shame. They were being influenced by social shame. They're being shamed into going back to Judaism. How dare you upset the tradition of our fathers? That sort of thing. Well, how about us? Have you ever been tempted to deny Christ? at work or around your friends because of the shame for being connected with Christ's name? Right? You ever wanted to salvage your reputation by even just remaining silent around your friends? I think our silence in situations like that speaks just as much as our a verbal denial and outward spoken denial. It's just as telling anyway uh, the original audience was in a very difficult situation. They were being mistreated. It was trialsome, going through some really difficult times in life. What about us today? Are, are you going through any difficult things in your life? Any trials? Any temptations? I mean, what about that situation you're facing? Is Jesus sufficient for that situation that you're in, that situation you're facing? Is he sufficient? Is he enough? Remember, he's, he's been in your shoes. He can relate to you and what you're going through. He's been through it all worse than, worse than we have. He's been tempted far greater than we have. He can relate to what you're going through. But secondly, remember... He upholds the universe, too. So is, is what you're going through actually too big for a Jesus that can hold the universe in his hands? It's a good question, isn't it? God has spoken to us in his Son in such a way that he can speak to whatever you are going to go through in this life. And we'll plan on taking that principle further next week.